Welcome to Allison's Wonderland. I'm your host, Allison Packard. Join us as we journey through the looking glass and down the rabbit hole into the wild and wonderful world of animation and video games. Hey, do a girl a favor and please subscribe to this podcast and go on iTunes and leave us a good review. If you like the show, please help spread the word. It really helps us to get heard by more people. Thanks so much. Hey guys, welcome back to Allison's Wonderland. I'm your host, Allison Packard, and with me today in the studio is a very special guest, Daniel Rojas, the music composer best known for his work on Kipo and the Age of Wonder Beasts, as well as shows like Hip Monkey. So please join me in welcoming Daniel Rojas. Daniel, welcome to Allison's Wonderland. Thank you so much. Oh, so glad to have you here. Now, you have a pretty interesting story about how you grew up. Both your parents were musicians. Correct. Right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, honestly, it was, I think I got very lucky because sometimes, and especially seeing like some other of my friends early on or classmates, it's difficult to, to explain to your parents that you're going to dedicate your life <laughs> to music and arts and stuff. And I never had that problem because my parents were both in the arts and they fully understood the value of that. So I feel like that was one of the biggest things that I was always encouraged to take this seriously if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I was never forced. And I mean, at some point in my life, I wanted to do something completely different. After watching Jurassic Park, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I <laughs> wanted to be a astronaut, all kind of things. But I think my parents always knew that I was gravitating towards music. Mm-hmm. So they always kept me in classes and, you know, pretty excited about music in general. And then the more serious I got, they fully encouraged it, which is when I see that I see the the divide because I had friends who were really talented, but their parents wouldn't really encourage that side as mm. much. They thought it was a little bit, you know, like almost getting away from the real job or whatever that stigma that we have as artists. Yeah. And I thankfully never had that. Like there, there's I no wanted, money in it or yeah, you need to get a real job. My parents never made me afraid of that. They just basically told me, if you want to do this, then you got to do it for real. You know, like if you really want to pursue it, you got to take it seriously and you got to, you know, get it together. Well, I had <laughs> to fangirl that, so. out a little bit because <laughs> when I was listening to the soundtrack to Kipo, uh-huh. I was blown away. I was like, this is just not your average <laughs> kids album. I mean, oh, I will so like much. go on a jog and put it on and just, you know, the beats are so fresh and you have such a broad uh, understanding of tones and styles. It's almost like, you know, they could be like, give me something that <laughs> sounds like this. And and then you're turning around the, this, you know, very uniquely different and diverse album of music. So. Well, thank you. I mean, that's obviously what I would love to hear and was our concept when we were kind of getting started on that was to make yeah. it as diverse as the show is, you know, try to kind of make a metaphor musically of what the show represented, which was... And how many instruments do you play? I would say, you know, comfortably anything that is like Uh guitar-like, you know, guitars, bass, ukulele, and piano. So keyboards and and guitars, Uh that's where I feel I'm like fully proficient. That's where I got my degree and everything. Uh And now as far as like messing around, then I do get to record a lot of percussion, of course, because it's, you know, part of my job to find sounds and things like that. And I can do like decent enough job in like cello or viola if I have to like record very slowly. But if I need to record something professional and for it to sound like something from a conservatory, I would not 
say I could play those uh-huh. instruments. So I would say I'm a mediocre cellist, a proficient guitarist and pianist. <laughs> Although with elect- with music and home recording, there's a lot you can fix oh, in the mix. I'm, I'm very, very <laughs> glad for quantization and tuning. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> It's been a, a big helper in my cellist career. Yeah. Who are some of the songwriters that have inspired you throughout the years? Songwriters. Wow, there's so many, honestly. Oh, I, musical like, artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll accept that. I think... It would really depend on on the time, like the year, or let's okay, say. Let's take it. Let's take it back mm-hmm. to uh, you as a child, like a kid. My son is six, so when he was watching mm-hmm. Kipo, like you know the music, he loves it, and he actually yeah <laughs> performed one of your songs at his. That's little, amazing! Um, you shared it. Yes, show. Was, that made me so, so happy. Yeah, it was very cool. But <laughs> like when you were like a little kid, who were some of your musical influences? Well. I, again, because my parents were musicians, mm-hmm. I was very lucky to be presented with pretty, I mean, music is good or bad, depending on your taste, of course. But, you know, music like Michael Jackson and the mm-hmm. Beatles and things like that very early on, which, you know, is universally considered pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my parents had good taste, I would say, you know, the, so as a child, I was able to experience all that type of music fairly early. But of course, I was also into very pop music, just like what my classmates and my friends would listen to. So at the time of growing up. I mean, Costa Rica is a mix. So there are bands in Spanish, a lot of things that come either from Mexico or Colombia or things Mm -hmm. like that. In Costa Rica itself, we didn't have that much like Costa Rican music Mm -hmm. growing up. But as far as like Anglo bands, like American bands and things like that, I mean, I went through like some rock phase Mm -hmm. where I liked even pretty heavy stuff. Like like Metallica. Yeah, (laughs) Iron Maiden and things like that. Uh, Metallica, I mean, I liked it, but not so much. I I went a little more left of center with like Uh. Megadeth and things like that. That was uh-huh. like my high school years. And the reason why I pursued guitar, although in the end I did a jazz guitar degree, but I, you know, rock music had so much guitar that that was a big influence. Yeah. But nowadays, I would say I try to stay current in mm-hmm. the in the world of pop. So I, I'm not one of those snobby you know, uh, classical <laughs> musicians that doesn't like pop music. I listen to pop music all the time. Yeah. And by pop, I mean the broader term of it. You know, like I love hip hop. I love trap. I love even in Spanish, like some reggaeton artists, not not the whole thing, but some of them are doing great, great stuff. So I try to keep it broad and fresh. Mm-hmm. And I also like to dig in a little bit. Like one of my favorite artists is Banks, who's not like super famous mainstream, but she does amazing music in the style, I would say, like a darker version of what Billie Eilish is. Okay. Mainstream. So wow. things like that I, I really love. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you kind of you went to college and mm-hmm. you were majoring in jazz, I believe. Correct. Yes. And so then you came out of there and also how did you make the transition from being a jazz musician to being a music composer? I did start from the very bottom, mm-hmm. honestly, by uh-huh. picking up lunch <laughs> orders and making good espresso. So here that in they LA? would call me. Yes, here uh-huh. in LA. Okay. So, so I, I studied in Texas. Or? Mm-hmm. Kind of, exactly. So I studied in Texas and I did get my degree in jazz, mm-hmm. the University of North Texas. And then I moved to LA and I had a friend who worked at Remote Control Studios, which is Hans Zimmer's studio. And he nice. was able to kind of invite me a couple times to just be around. So it was not an official job or anything, just be around and be of service <laughs> if people kind of need you. And, you know, it wasn't that long ago. That was like 2009. I came here the summer of 2008 for wow. a couple months, but it was, I think, a little bit easier than it is today, although it's only been 10 to 15 years. But I, from what I hear nowadays, they require 
require a lot of paperwork and they require you to be like enrolled in a school or whatever. Yeah. Back in the 2010s or before, mm -hmm. you just showed up. Oh, you yeah. Know? And if they needed lunch, <laughs> they would shout at you and yeah. you would go get the lunch and bring it back, you know? So it wasn't as official as it is mm -hmm. now, but that was kind of how I started to dip my feet into yeah. this world. And then I got connected with Klaus Badel, who is most known for his score to Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, okay. Who's uh, another German composer. And he was the one who I, I would say took me under his wing a little more in the in a musical way, in the sense that I with him I was actually working on music. Mm -hmm. Be, uh, before him, the, the you know the time before that, it was more like just running errands and doing hard drive backups and things like that. Sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, waxing the car, <laughs> exactly, all all of that stuff. But yeah, so in my career, I mean, to kind of try to do it quickly, I started uh, as an assistant with Klaus, doing a lot of tech work, like setting up his servers, his sessions, things like that, mm -hmm. recording for him. And then I kind of graduated up, you know, to become an arranger. Then I started orchestrating. Can you just take it back even and tell yeah. us what an arranger does yeah for sure so in the world of film music the word arranger is a little bit different to what a classical musician might think of an arranger like when I was in school an arranger would be someone who would take you know a, a piano sketch and like arrange it for different instruments uh -huh. and things like that got it in the world of film music it usually means more production so an arranger is someone who takes a sketch and programs it into something that sounds like a proper cue that can be presented that's okay. kind of what they call an arranger so for example a composer a lead composer would come up with an idea or a theme and then the arrangers would take it and create cues and you know it's a little bit broader because you're doing a little more than just arranging but you add the the percussion you divide the strings properly you add some brass you add some synths and things like that and kind of build it up for it to be presentable to whoever is the filmmaker got it so you dabbled in that and then then i dabbled a little bit in orchestration which is another process of the <laughs> film thing and again orchestration <laughs> all this i think the the film music has taken all these terms and kind of done their own thing with them because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. orchestration when i was like, in college was very the same term. <laughs> it is the same term but you know i think it would be interesting to some people watching to yeah. to know that in, in the world of film orchestrating is more like putting things on paper Okay. So since we work so much on a computer, mm -hmm. everything is in a DAW, like Logic or QA's, Pro Tools, whatever it is. Once you want someone to play that live, you need to put that on paper, on score oh, for yeah. the musicians to read it. Uh -huh. And that's what an orchestration mostly does, wow. uh, orchestrator mostly does, is take the MIDI, basically, and write it out. Whether it is for an orchestra or a chamber ensemble or just oh, one so violin. Cool. You yeah. have to be able to take the MIDI, write it properly, you know, to uh -huh. make sure it's within a range, that you're not writing notes that they cannot play, things like that. So that's another job that is very common for young, aspiring composers mm -hmm. to do. And you learn a lot because since we work, again, so much with uh, computers, sometimes you do things that are not playable. Like, you know, you might write a note that is too low for a violin because you're using a patch right okay but when you're writing it you need to know that they cannot go past a certain g you know mm -hmm. and if you write that lower than that there's nothing they can do <laughs> it's <laughs> so, new instrument yeah exactly so the those are the things that you know i think as a young musician it's it's important to kind of learn if you want to eventually be a composer that's great yeah so how long did you dabble in different as an avenues assistant of those things as an assistant. about Three, three and a half years. Seems so. rad radically quick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was, it wasn't as long. I did do a lot of projects in that time mm -hmm. because it was pretty intense. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, it was definitely the cliche Hollywood uh -huh. assistant where you're working until three in the morning and back at seven, you know, sometimes, you know, like sleeping three hours, 
chugging a bunch of coffee and terrible deadlines. It was three and a half years that felt like 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was kind of concentrated. And on the flip side, I did feel like I learned a lot and I, you know, made some contacts and learned the craft, I would say, by just yeah. watching other people yeah. doing things. But yeah, coming in like 2012, I that's when I decided, let me try to just start doing my own things. So how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, what was your first gig? My first gig was actually commercial. And okay. that was the gig that made me like jump off from uh -huh. the assistant world. Uh -huh. It was a commercial for Pepsi in Spanish, but for the Super Bowl. So it was a whole wow. like campaign. It was like six commercials mm -hmm. for Pepsi in Spanish, mostly for the American market. So like Univision and Telemundo and uh -huh. those things. But the world of commercials can pay pretty well if you compare it to the assistant world. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw that, I landed it and I was like, okay, this is kind of my exit right now because this is... It wasn't, I mean, in hindsight, it wasn't like a astronomical amount by any means, but I was making such little money yes. as an assistant that that was like six months. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, okay. In like three weeks, I could make what I normally make in six months. So that's when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to try my own thing. And you can be pitching. Yes, exactly. So I did start mostly with commercials. Mm -hmm. So that Pepsi commercial was with an ad agency in Austin, Texas, mm -hmm. that specialized again in the kind of Hispanic market. And that was kind of an untapped Territory. And you are Hispanic. I mean, yes, is, exactly. was that a coincidence or? No, no, no. It was, I mean, it had to do with some friends. I, I had this uh, Mexican friend here who, so I'm Costa Rican, but my friend was a commercial producer mm -hmm. and he had sent my music without me even knowing to this other people in Austin, Texas. Yeah, thanks, bud. <laughs> exactly. So he definitely hooked me up. And since what I did was very cinematic at the time, I mean, nowadays I've kind of branched out to other things, but I was working on this pretty like cinematic big film. Films and the Hispanic market for commercials had like a bit of a hole in, in that, yeah. you know, like they were not so epic as like English commercials mm -hmm. at the time. So if you would watch an English speaking commercial for Toyota, it was all film sounding like, uh -huh. like super epic. But then you would watch the Spanish ones and they were still a little behind, like with mm -hmm. a you know weak ukulele or something. So when I sent my demos, that ad agency thought it was pretty fitting for mm -hmm. their campaigns. So they started using me quite a bit. And uh, I did. Yes. Yeah, several other things with them and yeah the world of commercial is very much like our world here in yeah. the film that is just word of mouth yeah. so one of the producers would move to a different ad house and then would call me up and so I, I spent a good two to three years dealing mostly with commercials mm -hmm. and since it's not as steady I would complement it with just writing a lot with musicians like artists which uh, is pop? yeah like pop music oh so doing co-writes and stuff yeah. like that mm -hmm. amazing for like sync you know try to oh, like sure. sync things so write original songs to like pitch to TV shows and things like that. So I kind of, I would say from like 2012 to 2016, those four years, I was pretty apart from film and TV. Yeah. I, I just kind of dedicated that time and it wasn't a conscious decision. It was more kind of like what happened, happened. you know, I, I did a bunch of commercials and co-writes with all types of artists. And yeah, I, I started landing some songs here and there on like whatever, even reality shows or things mm -hmm. like that. But it was a good time, I feel, in hindsight to expand my sonic palette, you know, to just 
just try different things and, you know, read briefs and just try to like do something that sounds like this or something that sounds like that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit Mm -hmm. about your process for when you first read the brief to when you pitch the song? Yeah. So I think, well, like I mentioned briefly before, my girlfriend is is an actress Mm -hmm. in voiceover. So she does a lot of auditions. And I think there's a lot of similarities between the auditioning process and the demoing process, except that the demoing takes a lot longer. Uh (laughs) You know, an audition, you might be able to do it in an hour if you learn your lines and, you know, you do five takes or whatever, you're kind of done. Demo might take, you know, anywhere from three to five days if you have the time. You might have to do it overnight if that's what it takes. But in general, I think they usually send you references. So you try to listen to the references and definitely not copy because the job is not to copy things and Uh that can be very dangerous. So I think the job is usually to see what the through line is. You know, try to dig a little deeper and not Mm -hmm. just find like, oh, that beat is cool. Let's just do that. It's more like, okay, they send these five songs. What do they have in common? Mm -hmm. Like, how do they make me feel? Why do they like all these five songs? So I think that's kind of how you start. You know, you try to find the through line of whatever the brief was trying to say. And then it's a lot of trial and error. You know, you just start and try to see what feels good. See what feels good. Yeah. Do you exactly. start with the beat or do you start with a melody or lyric? Honestly, it's always different. So it depends too. Also, if I start with a guitar or with a piano, <laughs> you write very different songs. If you sit on the piano or if you take a guitar, I, I feel like if you take a guitar, things tend to be more rhythmic yeah. because of the nature of the instrument that is a little more manageable as far as rhythm goes. Mm. The piano, you tend to do something maybe a little more cinematic. Not always, but it tends to be that or ballady or something Mm. that is not necessarily in the piano you don't have the ability to be as rhythmic as you would that's Uh why for example the music of someone like Ed Sheeran sounds so different than someone like Adele Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with Mm -hmm. the fact that although both of them use pianos and guitars Ed Sheeran's music is very clearly guitar-y every time I hear like (laughs) they all start like that because he's writing on a guitar whereas someone more like Adele or Amy Winehouse you know it was very clear that they wrote those songs on the piano. Wow. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so what was your very first job then coming in as a composer for television? My first major one was actually Kipo. Was it? Yeah. My wow. Like I would say major as far as it was a big network yeah. with both Netflix and DreamWorks. I did do a good amount of like reality TV, but uh-huh. that's not scoring. That's more syncing. You know, like you don't write to music picture in reality TV. Mm-hmm. You just write music that fits a show. <laughs> Daniel, we need it. We need it. Angry, jealous, (laughs) (laughs) rage-filled Hollywood song. It's funny, but reality TV is full of like epic music. You don't realize it until you're like pitching for it. Uh But it's it could be the most trivial thing. Like, let's go into the supermarket. And the music sounds like a trailer for Inception. (laughs) It's it's just the way it's cut, you know? Like, they're like, oh, what are you getting for dinner? And the music is like... Because they try to like really up it up. So it's a good place to like sync music, you know? If that's the type of music that you want to be doing, uh, you'd be surprised. And as you watch reality TV, you will notice it more now. You're like, wow, this is really epic music for this moment. But that's how they build these shows. Now, did any of the songs that you submitted for your pitch for Kipo and the Age of Wonder Mm -hmm. Beast, did they get in the show? Not of what I pitched. So the the pitching process is, there's several layers to it. So you start usually with a demo reel that can be just existing music that you have. And this is not just for Kipo, just in general. You know, like when a show comes in and they don't have a composer in mind and they want to try some people, they'll uh, make a brief, you know, explain what the show is about, give you a little log line and some 
some reference tracks and then they ask for a reel. So you put together a reel of anywhere from 10 to 15 tracks mm -hmm. or songs. And that's what's going to take you to the next level, you know? So many, many times that's where it ends. You send your reel and you never hear back. When you hear back, our callback mm -hmm. is usually what they call spec or in our world, we call it spec for, like, I think it stands for spec. Specific, maybe? Speculate, speculative. Speculative, I'm sure. <laughs> speculative. You would know it. <laughs> so you do spec and that's actually to picture. Yeah. In the world of animation, it usually means to animatics uh -huh. because composers get in fairly early. So animation is months away mm -hmm. still. So they'll give you some animatics, which are basically storyboards that move a little bit. For those that don't know, I'm sure I know you know animatics. And then you try to score to the animatics. And that's also something that you get better at with time. Because uh -huh. at the beginning, if you're used to scoring live action, you're used to getting so many cues visually. Uh -huh. that storyboards can feel really lacking uh -huh. in that sense. Like things don't really move as much. But think like everything is just practice. I think mm. once you see more storyboards, you start learning more how, how the process is. And so maybe the animator even is inspired by what you're bringing to the table. That too, as, for sure. As they go through the process of especially, getting better boards, more detailed storyboards. For sure. Especially in a show like Kipo or mm -hmm. shows that have characters that are musicians or play instruments inside of the show. Uh -huh. That's crucial. We always have to do the music before they animate mm. or in general. So there's, uh, they call it pre-production music which means you write all the music and then the animators will animate to that. Because awesome. otherwise, it's almost impossible to make something musical if what you're trying to do is just match whatever they uh -huh. animated to nothing. You know, it's, it's so hard because there's no <laughs> rhythm, there's no mm -hmm. shape to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like you see that sometimes in shows. Like, like sometimes you watch a show and you're like, okay, they definitely wrote that afterwards. Because uh -huh. <laughs> it's like all over the place. And I don't blame the musicians, you know, like it's, right. it can be pretty tricky. So the scoring happens afterwards. But the pre-production music definitely has to be pre, you know, like pre-animation. Hey guys, this is Allison Packard. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to let you know that if you like the show, please, please, please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us to get heard by more people. Thanks so much. Now, when you did get the job hired mm -hmm. on Kipa, was it, did you get to work very closely with Rad Seacrest? Yes, very, very closely. So at the beginning of it, when we were doing the pre-production, it was mostly Rad. And at that time, there was a second showrunner, Bill Walkoff, who was one of the main writers. I think it was like the head of the writing room and they were co-show running up until post-production. Mm -hmm. So since I started on Kipo so early, I got to work with him and Rad together okay. quite a bit at the beginning of it. But once we started post, then he was out and it was just Rad. So the whole scoring process was only with Rad. Yeah. And of course, the music department, DreamWorks, who are very involved in, in everything. Uh -huh. And Kipo also had music supervisors, which was something that not all animated shows have. And correct me if I'm wrong, a music mm -hmm. supervisor is someone that licenses license music to okay exactly they but they also find the songs so it's not just <laughs> the you know the clearance part of it yeah yeah that's yeah. the boring side of their job yeah the creative part of their job is is trying to find the songs put playlists together and shape the sound of the show together yeah. with the composer so in our case <laughs> we had two music supervisors who worked together Peter Lehman and James Cartwright mm -hmm. who are fantastic and Dave Music supervised a ton of movies that I'm sure you watched even uh, Into the Spider-Verse oh. Mitchell's versus the Machines so they're big yeah and a ton of shows like 
I mean, if you look at mm-hmm. their their IMDb, it's probably a hundred shows that you would know. <laughs> wow. So we got really lucky that they were part of Kipo because they had really good taste and mm-hmm. they had very a very effective way of working, which to me being my first bigger show was super helpful because it wasn't, I mean, I was kind of the only newbie. Mm-hmm. They knew very well what they were doing and that was helpful because oh, I could yeah. rely on that, you know, even ask them when I was kind of in doubt of how something works. I'll be like, oh, that's fine. You know, like kind of guide me through it a little bit. Come under my way. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which was great. (laughs) Well, and your style seemed very simpatico. Like the the show was so cohesive between... Thanks, yeah. No, we definitely... I mean, we worked together very closely. Mm -hmm. I I was in touch with them nearly every day for about two years. Amazing. So, and in fact, we've done other shows together afterwards. But yeah, it was a very collaborative process in that Uh sense because every episode or most episodes I think there were a few that didn't have but most episodes have uh, licensed songs Mm -hmm. that they found and then I always had to make it cohesive like you said like just try to make sure that the score blended into them and out of them in a natural way that didn't feel odd amazing so we we had to be in touch all the time. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were a child of the '90s as well. Yes, I am. <laughs> did you? Were you a big cartoon fan? Yes, absolutely. Nice. I watched what? cartoons all the time. And did you? Were you particularly drawn to the music in cartoons? A lot. Uh-huh. Yes. I mean, there's so many cartoons, but I do remember. I mean, I love the Looney Tunes. I love Pinky and the Brain, mm-hmm. Animaniacs. Yeah, there's so so many shows that I would want. Yeah. And you know, what they brought to the table really helped to enhance those shows in sort of a new way, right? Prior to that, we hadn't, we hadn't seen that level of songwriting. Totally. Yes. It was so memorable and made the show so much more enjoyable. And I think a big reason why I do so much animation is precisely how much I enjoy that as a kid. Uh And that even sticks you know, 20 something years afterwards. I mean, I'm 34 now, but after, you know, growing up, I still feel like a lot of my background comes from from that time of just growing up, <laughs> watching cartoons all the time and loving them. Yeah. Right? And movies as well. I mean, yeah. yeah. And was it a strategic move to start doing composing more for animation? You also worked on Hitmonkey. So uh, was that intentional or was did it just kind of one led to the other? Funny enough, it wasn't. Mm. Actually, before Kipo, I had done very little animation. I had done some animated shorts, uh-huh. but I had not done any shows or any features in animation. Everything was live action. But I do think, you know, looking back, that it only made sense that my career would be kind of kickstart <laughs> with animation because I was such an animation fan. Like we were saying, that (laughs) it felt when I was in the room with animation people like animators or showrunners for animation shows I was at home like when they would speak about something I would know it if they would mention a movie I knew that movie I knew who did the music for that I knew the songs I knew everything which is something that is so so important I feel we don't realize it's it's as important as it is that when you're talking to the creatives to the people who are going to be your bosses you need to know what their world is really well and so that's why for example if let's say gore horror is (laughs) something that I didn't watch very much it's not something that I enjoyed very much I know there's a whole Mm -hmm. group of people that love that. But if I were in the room with a bunch of gore horror filmmakers, I wouldn't have that much to talk about. I mean, I saw the Saw movies or something. Like I've seen the most mainstream ones. Yeah. 
but it's not something that is part of who I am as mm -hmm. much. And I have colleagues that do that type of music and usually they know everything. They've watched 10 gore movies this year <laughs> and they know them. And that's yeah. how they are proficient enough to talk to the filmmakers. And I feel like that's what happened to me with animation. I yeah. was very proficient in animation knowledge mm -hmm. in general, that when I walked into a room at DreamWorks, I knew what I was talking about without really trying to, you know, push to pretend it, or push yeah. it or anything. It was just something that, yeah, I, I've seen all Shrek movies. What are you, you know, all of them, even the not so good ones. <laughs> but, <laughs> so, and then can you tell us at all what you're working on right now? Uh, yes. I mean, as usual, you have to be a little bit disclosed on, on some of that, but uh, I'm doing a new animated show with Nickelodeon. Amazing. That as far as I know, it's coming out later this year. Yeah. So towards the end of the year. Okay. And I'm pretty excited about it. And then I'm working on a couple other projects. I just wrapped up an independent film, which is live action. Oh. That is called Charlie and the Pandemic with Jordana Brewster. It's it's like a pandemic dramedy. Oh, which cute. is like I think we have a whole wave of pandemic we, movies coming up. We need <laughs> and this a is pandemic. this is one of them. Yeah. And uh yeah, a couple other side projects that I'm working on, but those are I would say the main ones. Now you spend so much time as a composer. Do you also have time for any personal music or Honestly, I mean, I for many years, I did have mm -hmm. my own projects or collaborations with artists. It's been a little bit tougher the past like three years, mm -hmm. I would say kind of since Kipo. It's mm -hmm. been kind of nonstop, which I'm very grateful for, mm -hmm. of course, but it's been, you know, overlapping shows pretty much. So I did do something that I would say is a bit of a passion project, which is opening up in a month. And uh, I wrote with a friend of mine this uh, piece for the pageant of the masters, which is a live event in Orange County in Laguna Beach. Is it great or something? It's going to be almost 60 shows. So it's going to okay. be every night for July, August and part of September. Uh -huh. And it's like a live show that mixes art with music. So uh -huh. there's like paintings, and they recreate the paintings and they use tableau, which is like a French mm -hmm. art, which is like people recreate the paintings and like stay there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then music plays behind them. It's very bourgeois, you know, but it's a, oh, a cool opportunity to write music to live ensemble. And it's like a wow. full on chamber orchestra. With wow. strings, brass, woodwinds, percussion. So I wrote, uh, yeah, our piece is like 17 minutes long. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a big one. Wow. And it, it's, uh, it's called Around the World's Fair. And okay. so it goes through a bunch of different countries, India, Mali. There's a, a little American section, Mexico, China. So I, I got to write all different types of music, mm -hmm. which is what drew me through it. When, when I was offered the opportunity, I saw it, I saw the script. I was like, this is cool. Like I don't get to write for amazing musicians to play live for 60 shows all the time. So, but that was definitely a, a bit of a passion project because it wasn't, you know, it's not what I really do nowadays. Yeah. But it was. Uh, wow. I want to cool. go down and see it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I, I believe it's starts July 5th and July it's going to be in Laguna okay. Beach at the so beautiful Laguna Bowl or something they call okay. it. So Good to know. Yeah, that was I'm like sure a you'll be there. Little side <laughs> thing. I'll be, I'll be there Opening a few of the night, nights perhaps. probably. Yeah, 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 I'll probably go down. I don't know, two or three nights. Yeah. Do you get like to that. be backstage like with the orchestra? <laughs> I'll definitely get to like say hi to yeah. them, you know. And I've been in touch with you know, the concertmaster, the conductor. Uh -huh. And I wrote this with a friend of mine who's also Costa Rican, Andres oh. Soto. And uh, yeah, we actually, I mean, met here in the US, but it was a big amount of music. So I also needed someone yeah. to kind of take some of that wow. for sure. Gosh, I mean, I feel like we could chat all day. <laughs> I want to ask you about coverting, but I want to get to one question before mm -hmm. we go, yes. which is what advice do you have for anybody that might 
might want to become a music composer. Uh, composer. I was going to say producer, but I mean, I guess maybe either. That too. Yeah. That too. I I, I mean, actually, you br- you bring a good point that I can quickly and point to, which is I think production and composition nowadays are pretty much one. Mm-hmm. You know, like back in the day, it was said that orchestration and composition were one because it's true. Okay. When you were back in the day of you know Beethoven and Mahler, and I mean, even in, as soon as the early 20th century with the Russian composers Prokofiev and all of those, their orchestration was so in, embedded in their composition that you cannot take it apart. You cannot have someone like Ravel or Debussy without their orchestration. It just doesn't work. Mm. But nowadays, it's exactly the same with production. Production is so important to the sound of any composer that if you just distill the music, it won't really get you very far. But if your music is well-produced and it's a whole, you know, it's just the music and the production can live together. That's the type of music that people are going after. So I would highly encourage people if they're young, I would say, you know, learn music, obviously, but Mm -hmm. make sure you learn production because that's going to be super important. And if they're not as young, I would say actually probably even more emphasis on, on learning how to present their music properly, because most likely if they're not that young and they want to get into film music, they're already musicians, I would assume. Mm -hmm. You know, most of them are probably people that play instruments or do things like that. So they might already have the music side, but I think learning how to put it all together and have a good sound would be what's going to make you have clients one day. Yeah. (laughs) People that want to, you know, use your music. Amazing. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming out and talking with us today. My pleasure. It's been so great to learn about what you do as a music composer mm-hmm. and all the different aspects. And we can't wait to see your new show coming out, hopefully, Thank end you. of the year. Yes, yeah, yeah. We can add it as a comment later on when, when I can share what it is. <laughs> Yay! Well, thanks, everybody, for watching this show. And if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe and feel free to tell a friend because we are going to keep creating these amazing episodes for you. So we'll see you next time. See Bye! You. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Allison's Wonderland, where we explore the wild and wonderful world of animation and video games. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. For more episodes of Allison's Wonderland, please visit us at www.allisonpacker.com. See you next week.